Welcome back to another episode of our podcast, Stern Chats. We continue to pursue our mission of exposing the incredible stories of Sterney's past, current, and future. We are very lucky to have Guy Brewery with us today. Well, Sherry, who is Guy Brewery and what makes him so special? Well, people may not know this about him or may not even know him, although they've passed him in the hall, but Guy was actually involved in professional and Olympic sailing. He is a national championship winner and was a training partner for Great Britain's women's team on their journey to winning a gold medal victory in Beijing in 2008. Sherry, that is unbelievable. It's better than anything I've done today. Yeah, that's that's for sure. You know, one of the things I like most about Guy's story is that sailing is not just all about winning races for him. It's also a metaphor for everything that he does. Absolutely. Excellence in sports is excellence in every other aspect of your life. Well, I think people are really going to enjoy this episode. He's also a pretty proper English gentleman, and he's great to listen to. Absolutely. I just love that accent. Yeah, it's great. All right, let's start the show. Let's start the show. Cue the music. Stern Campus, this is Stern Chats, the podcast that tells the hidden stories between the lines of someone's resume. In the interest of serving the Stern community, building relationships, and unlocking important life lessons, we present these stories to a wider audience. Here with today's program are your hosts, Frank Fericchio and Sherry Holt. We're so happy to have Guy Breary, uh, MBA one from Stern. Guy, thanks for coming. Thank you very much for having me. The one thing that we just know about you from uh, just the initial meeting is you are, uh, you know, slightly famous here at Stern for being involved with Olympic sailing. Mm-hmm. So, Guy, you know, just tell us about how you got into sailing and just the trajectory that you took. Yeah, so um, my parents both sailed and were both pretty accomplished sailors. They actually met sailing uh, when they were about 15 or 16, I think. So it's always been sort of in the blood and in the family. My parents had a small yacht when just before I was born. So I think I was on the boat at three weeks old. And so it's, it's always been absolutely in the DNA. So before you could walk, yeah, I was still you was were on, getting on acclimated to the yeah, water. Yeah, for sure. But I spent the, probably the first 10 years just doing sort of family trips on the boat. Every weekend we'd be down there. And it's some of the sort of strongest memories of my childhood that when if we weren't sailing it during the summer, you pull the boat out onto the hard in the winter and there's a lot of maintenance and upkeep and my dad's incredibly practical he's brilliant with you know boats and with woodwork and so he did all that himself and so I used to go down and help him and obviously you sort of start off just running around and you're probably more of a liability than anything else because he's got to make sure you're okay but as I I got older and a bit more accomplished I was able to help a bit more and particularly you get all the grotty jobs so there's quite a few places on a boat that you know in lockers and things like that that's quite hard to get to if you're an adult so if you've got a sort of 10 10 or 11 year old they sort of get sent again he leveraged your small size yeah allowed me to be a little bit useful but I remember being you know, packed off by my mum with you know tuna and cucumber sandwiches and just going off with my dad for the day and that was uh, pretty special times but it was probably a two-hour drive to get down there so it was a you know I used to spend a, a long day and he had I think one CD he had Dire Straits and that's kind of uh, still my favorite music to this day kind of on repeat but yeah they were pretty special moments and talking to him a lot about sailing and a lot about his business actually quite a strong memory because he always had all his whole business backed up onto little cassette tapes and those cassette tapes were always in the car because it was a place that was you know physically detached if case was a fire at the business or something like that. So I always remember those sort of cassettes sitting in the back of the car every day. So Sherry and I were very curious about this fact we had heard about you is that you had an involvement with the, here I am talking for you again, I'm so sorry, but you had had an involvement with the Olympic team, which is something that most people can only dream of. Mm. Can you tell us about your Olympic experiences? Yeah, so I'd say growing up I was reasonably good. I wasn't, I wasn't, 
particularly special. I was, I was all right. Um, and I sort of went up through the, the British youth system, which is a fairly set pathway towards the Olympic process. But in terms of my own sailing, I got to a juncture of sort of, uh, I guess, Olympic squad level sailing or university. And for a mixture of practical circumstances, and frankly, I uh, wasn't quite good enough. You know, when you looked around, there were people who were better. And the guys who ended up doing that and going to the games were definitely a level above in our generation. So I went off to university, but I was very, very fortunate while I was there to have the opportunity to um, go back and be a tuning partner for the uh, the British girls who are doing sailing boat called a Yingling, which is a class that the, the British team have had a lot of success in. I think they won three consecutive Olympics. So they won gold. Gold, yeah. So this was in the build-up to China. So it was m myself and a couple of my friends. And there's a, there's a huge complexity in sailing around the equipment. So most of the classes have a set boat but you can change some things you can change the shape of your sails or some of the materials in the rigging which meant that a lot of the practice had to be about tuning that equipment finding the optimal equipment both for the girls in terms of their team for the venue just making sure that they they maximized any gain from equipment that was possible so hmm. our main role was to do a lot of sailing alongside them with a slightly different setup maybe a different sail or a different setting on the boat and just to see which one came out faster which was a yeah, really, really interesting time working with some of the best sailors and the best sail makers and the best riggers in, in, in sailing. Um, and obviously working with the girls who are three very, you know, absolutely world-class sailors. And I learned a huge amount doing that. So the, the years, uh, you were there for about a, for a year or a season? About a year and a half. So I did a little bit with a different team and then I think about a year from memory. With so them. the girls that you coached as an as a equipment expert and sailing expert, did they wind up, they actually wound up winning the gold? Yeah. So it, it's... It's not a coaching role. Um, it requires coaching skills in, I guess, that you sort of, you're giving feedback or giving an opinion. But you're mainly there as an equipment tester and a sounding board. And we, and we just raced against them all day. And on the days where we were faster, they'd say, what are you doing? What can we, you know, what can we learn from you? What are you, what are you, you guys getting right here that's different? And obviously there was plenty of times where they were a lot, lot faster. They were <laughs> uh, incredibly good. And they'd say, can you do more of this? So at least you keep up with us better. And then, uh, <laughs> and then I'll be more accurate testing. So I, I learned a huge amount. Um, so it was a great experience. It was uh, fantastic to have a very, very small part and be a little bit involved. And uh, those those girls are very, very impressive and uh, yeah, went on to get gold in Beijing. When it comes to equipment, though, I'm sure that there are a ton of parameters around what you can and cannot have. Mm. You know, it's not like street racing when you have like that, <laughs> you know, jet engine. That's just like, yeah. you, you can't press the out nitrous. the last. Yeah, that's what I'm talking well, is about. The, is the, that's actually, is there like a nitrous equivalent in sailing? You like flip the switch? No, not really, does it? They'll never see this coming. <laughs> you pull the red lever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was all quite secretive in terms of the setup, and there was a few different teams training at the same camp in Palmer. There was quite a lot of people, you know, sidling up in their speedboat, maybe a coach from another country, and having a little look at what was spying. going on in the boat. They were spying um, on you? And so there was a little bit of having to keep things a bit secret and oh my goodness. make sure no one got too much video of the way the boats were set up. Because it's, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a huge deal. And there's some, you know, you spend hours and hours and hours looking for that tiny gain. And uh, the last thing you want is for someone else to be able to just mimic it. Have um, you ever um, go like scuba diving yeah. and like go up to the other person's boat and like check out their hull? You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Did you guys ever do any kind of sneaky sort of counter intel? No, no, no. I mean, I think that the girls' girls' campaign was so well run. They were so professional. They were the best, frankly. And they set themselves up in a bubble and just said, 
you know, if, if we do what we know how to do, if we do all the right things, if we work incredibly hard, then we should get rewards. We didn't, you know, they didn't, there was never any suggestion of, uh, yeah, there, there wasn't any need. They were out there to be chased. They, they were the best. I mean, it was rather to try and catch them, but they, they took very, very seriously, keep pushing and pushing and pushing. And I think that was what I took away from that was the amazing relentlessness. And I, you know, I remember having you know, different dinners and things and, and a year and a half from the games, them saying, no, I'm not going to eat that because, you know, I just... Uh, you'd never want to be in a position where you thought I didn't have to have eaten that and now we've lost or I didn't have to do that and Did the lost, meal so. you eat can cause you to lose? It's one of those things that's not direct, right? But it's kind of one of those things oh. if we constantly do the right thing, if we, you know, if we never waver, if we give this absolute 100% commitment, then we will never wonder. So um, that is I a, am and learning it was, so many life lessons yeah, right now. Right? I honestly, I feel like you're speaking in metaphors. Really. <laughs> no, truly, when, you're, when you speak about the commitment, mm. the logic, the strategy that it takes to be elite. Mm -hmm. I mean, those things are absolutely translatable. Yeah, no cheat sure. days. There's no days off. That's, you know what I mean? You can't even eat uh, whatever uh, a British cheat meal is. <laughs> <laughs> I, what would a, I don't even know what that would be. High tea. High, yeah, too much high tea. Fish and chips, maybe. Uh, fish, and fish and chips. chips. Yeah, I, it's an everyday sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, it, it, they just absolutely live and breathe excellence, and they live and breathe Olympic gold medal, and that's uh, every day needs to include things that are going to get you closer to that gold medal. And that, as you say, I learned a huge amount being around that environment, but I think a lot of those lessons are translatable into life and certainly into business. Now you can say something that a lot of people would never be able to say is that you, that is the highest level you can compete in a sport is against an Olympic gold medal squad. Yeah, I and mean, obviously it'd be a higher level to have, have done it myself, or, but I was very honored to be asked and it was a, a great experience to have done it, certainly. So you were talking about anticipating the wins. Mm. So I just sort of imagine you just like sticking your finger in your <laughs> mouth and whipping it out and saying, where's the wind blowing today? How do you actually um, Yeah, it's got to um, be a bit that. more than that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a little bit more. So it's, that's how I would do that. <laughs> yeah, and that's, uh, you know, it's got to be a total body experience, I imagine, because you're surrounded by elements which are going to matter to either winning or not winning a race. Yeah, I think that's definitely fair. There's definitely a, a big sensory component to it. So it's what you can feel on your face and particularly when air changes temperature and there's a few indicators like that. I think that the biggest thing we tend to look for is looking quite a lot further ahead than you would actually be able to feel. So looking at clouds, looking at the wind on the water, the more you do it, the more practice you become at looking at the water and saying, right, the wind is coming that way or is going to be coming that way. Uh, here's where the strongest wind is. Here's where it's less windy. And then putting all those variables together. Um, I remember we were told when we were sort of in the British squad system growing up that it was considered the sport with the most variables. I think followed by motor racing, followed by horse racing, just in terms of the most things you've got to think about, factor in control as many as you can and, and try and get right to win a race. I can believe it's, it's certainly one of the most complex sports in terms of variables. And it's probably, as you say, not something that everyone would think of when they think of sailing, because you think of holidays and beaches and just sort of, you know, cruising around on a boat. Would you compare the complexity of the strategy to perhaps a quarterback of a football team? Or, I mean, I don't, I don't know how familiar yeah. you are with that. Yeah, others. no, definitely. Uh, it's an interesting analogy. I think that I guess the two differences would be that a quarterback, as I understand it, would get a play from somebody else and things reset, which gives you a chance to look at it. I think there's obviously huge complexity with the quarterback role that maybe you don't see in sailing. But the difference with sailing, I think, would be that it's a constant process. So a race is typically an hour long. So you're going to make hundreds of decisions real time and each one's going to you know, give you a gain or a loss and then force your next set of decisions. So there's not really a chance to appraise very much, which I think makes it quite hard. And it's one of the challenges actually with coaching. I've done quite a lot of coaching. So I was the 
Australian national coach to the, one of the junior teams for Australia. That um, is not too shabby, my friend. No, no, yeah. <laughs> Which was a, yeah, a fantastic experience. And I, I regularly tell that story now in interviews as my first project management experience. But the, the, the challenge with coaching is that, you know, the kids will go and race for an hour and, you know, they'll come 10 places less or below where they expected to come or wanted to come. And, you know, what should I do differently? And the answer is, you, you know, there's, there's hundreds of things over that hour that all need to be tweaked. It's not, it's not necessarily one thing that cost you or didn't you cost you. You can't just race. say to a kid, you lost because blank. It's going to be a long conversation. Yeah, of course. And it, yeah, but I mean, yeah, these these are kids. I think that's one of the benefits of doing a sport, and one of the things that I think I've really got from it is the ability to be coached and to um, receive feedback. And it was one of the frustrations I had joining the workforce. Actually, was that real life doesn't tend to operate like that, and not a not everybody was on a mission like I was to be the best at whatever they were doing, and. In fact, most people think you're quite hard work if you are like that. But also that you just don't get feedback. You know, your boss is not geared up like a coach is to say, okay, that you've had a pretty good day today. What you should have done differently was this. Come back better tomorrow. That's just not how being in an office works. And that was quite a big adjustment for me, actually. I, I sometimes attribute that to sort of a, a lack of attention. I think that you clearly on the boat are so attuned to every aspect of the race mm-hmm. and the, the physical boat itself that you you notice everything so i imagine that those skills have really translated into your everyday life i am i'm interested to hear like when you when you got into the workforce like how did you integrate the skills that you learned when sailing yeah i think that's a really interesting question i think it's one of my favorite topics actually and um it's something my brother's done a fair bit of work on is the sharing of what it means to be elite between business sports top in the medical professions just if you're the best at anything what it what it's taking you to get there and what the lessons that can be learned across um, and I think that's a bigger theme generally now with sort of, I mean, certainly in the UK with British cycling, but I think elsewhere with the science of marginal gains. So how once you've got to a point of being elite or very, very good at something, do you look at the aggregation of lots of small gains? So I think in answer to what I sort of took into work for, I think obviously I'm, I'm deeply competitive, maybe to a fault. But, um, and I think just that desire of wanting to get better, wanting to learn and understand something. And, and I don't like doing something if I'm not going to give it everything I've got and try and be the best I can do it. And I think that... Um, and then I think there's a lot of the sort of the more practical skills that sailing teaches a lot of independence pretty young. You, you know, you're a kid, you get cast off in your boat and things break or you're two miles out to sea with waves bigger than your boat and you're pretty scared and you got to man up and get on with it. Or, you know, you just, that's you just, frightening. <laughs> the waves are bigger than your boat yeah, and you're I mean, still, I mean, honestly, I feel like that's in baseball, like, you know, like when it rains. You call it. It's like you're done. Right. It's like like waves are bigger than the boat. Like we're out. Yeah. Right. You that can't be just be day. like, hey, hey, God, can you can you uh, just like calm it down a little bit? Yeah. Here's uh, <laughs> can you can you stop the the waves so that you don't call it off at that point? You got to uh, keep going. There, there is there is obviously a limit. So there's a there's a lower wind threshold. But there's just not enough wind to make it fair. Um, right. And there's an upper wind limit, which is pretty much safety dictated. And to be honest, you stop really racing at a certain point so it stops becoming tactically interesting you're just trying to survive keep the boat upright because you win if somebody else falls over and you don't and obviously that threshold is lower with children sailing kids sailing than it is for, for adults but yeah yeah it's an interesting uh, a moment in your life when you stop trying to win and you just try to survive <laughs> yeah know? yeah can you um elaborate on that <laughs> have you ever been in an instance where yeah. you didn't Dangerous where it was scenario. a question yeah, I mean, I think certainly as a kid, there was a few times when, you know, we were a long way out to sea. And it's quite an interesting thing, actually. When a, when a boat flips completely upside down, there's kind of a bubble of air that's created inside it. And the boat that I sailed was a fairly deep boat. So a large bubble of air. 
Yes, you have a large bubble of air, but um, you also have what's called a centerboard going up through the middle of the boat. And you need to use that to get the boat upright. But sometimes it will just fall through into the water, which means that one of you has to dive underneath the boat, slot this thing back in, up through the slot, so it's sticking out the top of the boat again, in order for the person on top to pull the boat back over. And I remember the first time having to do that, it, you know, you're cold, you're tired, you're, and you go underneath, and it, yeah, that, is all, that was all pretty scary at times. And yes, yeah, the mean, unknown. Yeah. You don't know what's under there. You know, there's enough air in there, so you should be fine. And you've just, you've got to make sure you don't get tangled in the ropes because obviously that could be pretty dangerous and I mean don't get me wrong all these events that I was doing were fully attended by you know uh, guys in speedboats and my, my parents had a had a small rib a small rescue boat um, so they used to sort of help out and it was all sort of parent organized and it was very safe but you know it, even within that you're still you know you have yeah, your moments you have it's, it's a dangerous sport it's um, um, all the safety precautions are there so I think I think it's it is safe well there's but a da- yeah but there's, there's a danger there's always a little bit of risk yeah but, I mean so you've been you've been judicious <laughs> you haven't uh, dissuaded people from from sailing in the future no and I think that you know it's something you take incredibly seriously on the occasions I've had to make a decision about whether we should go sailing or not with the, you know particularly with kids you know when I've been the sort of coach it's something you take incredibly seriously and you you know, if you're not sure or you're not convinced, then you definitely don't do it. It's as simple as that. What um, would you say is your greatest achievement? That is tough because there's a number of different events and results and victories that I'm proud of for different reasons. One that stands out, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's quite a long time ago now and it's a bit, it's, it's a sort of junior level. So I was 17 or 18, but it was the first you know, big event that I won. And I won the, what's called cadet, it's type of boat that I'd sailed for since I was 10. Uh, I won the Inland National Championship, so I won the national title of inland sailing against 100 other boats that that was really huge for me because it was it's the combination of a huge amount of work i was reasonably good when i was young and then had a bit of a wobble i think it's fair to say when i was in my teens didn't handle pressure very well really really struggled with that and the sort of mental side of it and that's when i sort of really talked to a lot of sports psychologists and and really reflected on the mental side of it went away and did some hard thinking didn't do very well for about a year and a half um, managed to get myself together as I grew up a little bit and came back and won that. So that was quite, that was probably for that reason, the biggest, biggest standout for me. What did you have to decide coming out of that tough period that helped you overcome all of your anxieties? I think it was something that does now definitely apply particularly a business school. And it's something that when it was, uh, it was a psychologist first said this to me, I thought that is the epitome of sort of, be careful my language, but yeah, of, of, <laughs> of psycho nonsense I really didn't get it and I think it was it was a huge lack of maturity and what and what the psychologist said was to win you have to dare to lose and I thought that's you know what does that even mean that's nonsense isn't it but actually what it really means is that in order to win you have to say in a bit a bit like um everyone's doing it at Olympic level I'm going to give this absolutely everything and see what happens and if I get found wanting then that exposes you to maybe you know you're you're just not good enough and that's it, it's much easier in life and in sport to sort of hide behind, well, you know, I didn't actually do that much revision, so it's not that. You like know, you could have done I it. Could have, I could have done it if I'd have done this, or I prioritized that a little bit more. But I think opening myself up to say, you know what, I'm I'm going to do everything in my power to try and win this, and I'm going to find out if I'm good enough. And that's a, a level of vulnerability. And it's I think it's the same as recruiting. I, t- I take the same view that, and it's, you know, we're, we're going to find out pretty quickly whether we're, we're going to get jobs or not. And that is a little bit of a vulnerable place to put yourself in, but I think you, you only really succeed in life and in anything if you can get yourself to that point. And the other big thing I took away from sailing was that, you know, the, the principle of controlling the controllables. And I think that that's something I also, every single day, you, you, you know, there's, there's so many variables and you've got to control the controllables. You've got to say, right, what is within my power 
And I can't control, you know, taking it back to school, I can't control what the recruiter, how their morning was, whether they're in a great mood. I can't control how many slots they want. I can't control any of that. So there's no point in worrying about it. What I can control is to make sure I'm always as professionally dressed as I can be, that I'm very clear how I map my experience to what they're looking for, that, that I get everything that I can right. And I believe that applies at business school, at work, uh, in sport. You know, I, I think that failure does make you stronger. I think it does make you better. And I had a very senior director who uh, came into the room once when we started a project and he said, uh, I'm, I'm going to be excellent because I have failed endlessly. I know every way to fail. <laughs> if, if there is a way to get this wrong, I've done that. So, and I'll see it coming. So I'll see it coming. If this is about to fall over, I've already played that game. And I just thought that I mean, it, it, clearly he was a very impressive guy and it, it wasn't entirely true. He did it to make a point. But I like that. You know, it's, he, didn't, he didn't come in and give us a lecture about everything he'd done that was brilliant because you, know, you do learn more from your mistakes. I think that's really important. I had no idea that your wife was also an athlete. How'd you guys meet? How'd you Power find couple. each other? Yeah, so she's uh, she was a very, very good athlete as well. So she was captain of the Michigan field hockey team uh, when oh. she was at school. So um, we met in a, um, dare I say, dodgy bar in London um, <laughs> when she was on London on business. So we were doing long distance for a while when, when I met uh, Krista, my wife. She was actually living in New York and was just in London on business. So uh, there was some discussion about her moving to London for work, but that fell through. Um, and then she got relocated to Hong Kong. Uh, which is a fantastic opportunity for her career. Um, and she said, you know, he, are you going to come? Uh, which I was obviously very, very keen to do. We were sort of fairly, so we'd been dating probably about a year at that point. Um, but I was still very, very keen to go. Uh, it took me a little while to organize my career, uh, but I ended up leaving the job I was in, quitting my job. I moved to Hong Kong without a job to be with her. So that was quite oh my a... God. So you're so telling romantic. me you wooed her on a short <laughs> business trip? What can God. I say? That accent... Yeah, that is incredible. Oh. I don't actually think that's true. I think she she works for a British company, so I think she was. Uh, well, she was immune. Fairly immune to the accent. <laughs> you know. Can we just say that your charms are very potent? It only <laughs> takes a few drops and a few dance moves and a few oh. dance moves. Oh my goodness! So you're talking like Macarena style or more? Stop, Sherry. Macarena is not a thing anymore. Macarena will always no. be a thing. You know this? No, no. Uh, he I, to me he looks more like a um, YMCA. Yeah, YMCA type of cat or electric slides. Electric slides. Straight yes. up conga. You can't. Conga. Conga. <laughs> what, what about the horror? How do you feel about the horror? The oh, horror? That's a lot of fun. Yes. Yeah, can't say I'm fun. familiar with the horror. It oh sounds, my goodness. Uh, Sherry, uh, please. We're going to get a Hopefully demonstration. Hopefully, <laughs> when I have a an elaborate Jewish wedding, you will be there and we will engage in the horror. I look forward to that. <laughs> Very much so. Yeah. You can't have a simple Jewish wedding? No, elaborate. Oh, uh, if you're a man and you're uh, uh, handsome and uh, ambitious, you can date Sherry. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And she'll teach you to dance. So what else do you do? And she'll teach you to dance. Yeah, yeah she'll, exactly. And you'll, you're, uh, she'll treat you to an elaborate Jewish wedding. <laughs> Guy, uh, you've said it all. You know what I mean? Uh, we've learned a lot about you today that I don't I don't think that... Uh, <laughs> what's funny about that? Oh, those are so cheesy. <laughs> but I love it. It's, it's so genuine. Yeah. That's Guy, you said it all. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you so much. Cool. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate that. Yeah.